0: On Saturday, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger held their annual Berkshire shareholder meeting. For seven hours, they answered questions. They answered questions on a variety of different topics. They talked about Elon Musk. They talked about Paramount Global. They talked about the Activision-Microsoft merger. They talked about portfolio strategy, diversification, life advice, human behavior, and a variety of different topics. This was a seven-hour meeting, and what I did was took this seven hours and boiled it down to what I believe are the most impactful and insightful takeaways from this meeting, and things that I think that largely the media are missing. So what I hope to do in this video is give a highlight of this last meeting and what I believe are the biggest insights and biggest takeaways. So we have a lot to get to in this episode, And I'm excited to see what we can learn from Warren Buffett. Now, one thing I'll mention is we're looking at the passive income portfolio, which is by far my biggest investment account. This is where I'm investing the huge majority of my money. And a lot of people say that they like listening to Warren Buffett, they like hearing his advice. But the interesting thing that I note is even though they listen to his advice, they don't implement his advice, they don't follow his advice, they go down a different path. In my case, I am following Warren Buffett's advice. That's my goal. To actually listen to what he says, but then implement what he talks about. I'm not mimicking his exact portfolio, but what I am mimicking is his investment philosophy and his investment advice to the best that I'm able to do it. This is a case where I'm not only listening to what he says, but I'm trying to implement it in this portfolio. Now, being a small time investor actually gives me some unique advantages over Buffett. He manages over $500 billion worth of assets. That is massive. $500 billion makes it so that your investment universe is much smaller. In my case, I'm managing a much smaller amount of money, so I have a lot more opportunities. Now when I track the performance of the passive income portfolio, so far it's been really good. I keep track of it on a monthly and yearly basis, and so far over the past two years it's beat the S&P 500. In fact, the more I implement Warren Buffett's advice, the better returns my portfolio has, and the better I feel about the portfolio. The more calm I am during market volatility, the less I'm concerned about my individual companies. Even though this is a high concentrated portfolio into nine different positions, I have no stress when making these investments. So this is a portfolio that I try to center around Warren Buffett's advice because I believe his advice is the best. No one else has achieved 20% returns for 40 years. Now, having said that, let's go ahead and jump into the first question here. This one is regarding general advice. Warren Buffett is asked, if you're a young person, what are the type of life lessons you need to know to have success in this world? And the answer that Buffett gives here is so richly packed with good information, I believe it's the best answer in this entire meeting.
1: You just wanna make sure you don't make any mistakes to take you out of the game or come close to taking you out of your game. You should never have a night when you're worried about uh, investing.
0: So right there, he highlights something that a lot of people aren't doing. They aren't following his advice to begin with. He says that you should never have a portfolio where there's a chance that you're taken out of the game. Being taken out of the game means that you're set back a substantial amount. You're taken way back. This is something that a lot of investors are still doing. They're using leverage. They're using margin. They're using options. They're using short-term instruments to try to boost their gains. Warren Buffett is saying to avoid that. First and foremost, in business, never risk what you have. If you have something, don't put it up for risk, even if the probabilities are incredibly small. And Buffett himself is a living example of this. This is the reason that Berkshire Hathaway has over $100 billion in cash. He never takes any risks that could bring them out of the game. So step one, if you're using lots of leverage, if you're using options, if you're using short-term vehicles to try to boost your gains, you're not following Warren Buffett's advice, you're taking excess risk, and at some point that risk will catch up to you.
1: It's just spend a
0: little bit less than you earn. Next piece of advice, we move on to the simple instructions of spending a little bit less than you earn. This is something that the majority of people in the US have a lot of trouble with. Savings rates are usually very low because people spend just as much as they earn. And if they earn more, they spend more. If they earn more, they continue to spend more. So if you spend as much as you earn, you're not following Warren Buffett's advice. You should have a healthy margin in your savings rate.
1: Then you've got debt and the chances are you'll never get out
0: of debt. And once you get into debt, the chances are you won't get out of debt. This is a problem that so many people face. This is the reason that the Dave Ramsey show is so popular. So many people are indebted and they can't get out.
1: Credit card debt and we're in the credit card business big time and the world will stay in the credit card business, but why get behind the game? And if you're effectively paying 12 or 14 or whatever percent you're paying on a credit card, you know, you're saying I'm going to earn more than 12, 14% of money, and if you can do that, come to Berkshire Hathaway. So,
0: avoid credit card debt at all costs. The minimum that credit cards charge in annual interest is typically around 12%. That's on the low end. 12% is a hurdle rate that's very difficult to beat. If you're paying interest on credit cards, you should be cutting those credit cards up. They are working against you, not
1: for you. Well, I'll, I'll give you a couple of lessons. I'll, you know. Tom Murphy, the first time I met him, said two things to me. He said, "You know, always tell someone to go to hell tomorrow." Well, that was great advice then, and think of what great advice it is when you when you sit down at a computer and screw your life up <laughs> forever by by telling somebody to go to hell or something else. You don't need to vilify anybody to make your point on on on, on subjects of discussion. And
0: this is something that I think is particularly applicable to social media. Social media in many cases is a cesspool of people attacking other people, people that scrutinize everything someone else does. And if they do anything slightly objectionable, another person will attack them for it. They'll look for flaws. They'll look for any type of slip ups anywhere, and they'll try to look for a weakness and expose it and exploit it. Social media in many cases is vicious and people act viciously towards one another. But this is behavior that Warren Buffett himself has not participated in. If I was to ask you, when has Warren Buffett been vicious towards someone else? Can you name one example, one single example in Warren Buffett's entire life of him specifically being vicious towards another person? I can't think of a time. I can't think of one instance. Now, he talks down Generalities. He talks down behavior of maybe greedy people in general, but he doesn't do it by name. He doesn't go after anyone specifically because he knows that his words carry a lot of weight and he knows that the outcome of him attacking someone else does not generate a good outcome for him, for his business, or for the person that he's attacking. It is a zero sum game, it benefits no one. And this is a behavior that I think is highly applicable to YouTube, to Twitter, to Instagram. So many people are so motivated to go out and highlight all the flaws of someone else for the sake of drama and for the sake of clicks. And this is something I'm sure a lot of us can do a little bit better on. In my case, with my YouTube, I'm sure that I've slipped up and there's times where I'm not perfect at this, but overall I've made an effort to not make my channel focused around criticizing other people, to not try to use other people to humiliate them for my own benefit. So there's a choice that we can make. We can either try to focus on the flaws of other people, we can try to humiliate them, we can try to criticize other people, Or we can try to find the good in other people, we can build relationships and overall have kindness. And I believe the latter option is a much better option both personally and business-wise.
1: I've never known anybody that was basically kind that died without friends. And uh, I've known plenty of people with money that have died without friends, uh, including their family. The thing about
0: Buffett is he's not only an investing expert, he doesn't just understand a moat and returns on capital, but he's also a public relations expert. He understands the public relations better than most marketing or PR firms. He has built this public persona and image of himself by having the discipline to always lean towards kindness. Now, Charlie Munger's answer to this life advice question is a lot more succinct.
2: Well, it's it's so simple to spend less than you earn and invest shrewdly and avoid toxic people and toxic activities, and try and keep learning all your life, etc., etc., And do a lot of deferred gratification because you prefer life that way. And if, if you do all those things, you are almost certain to succeed. If you don't, you're going to need a lot of luck, a lot of luck. And you don't want to need a lot of luck. You want to go into a game where you're very likely to win without having any unusual luck.
0: We don't have complete and total determination over the outcome of our lives, but we do have an immense amount of influence. And Charlie Munger believes that if you use the influence you have, and continually exercising good judgment every single day, then ultimately you're very, very likely to end up with a good outcome. And that's a much better option than the alternative of exercising poor judgment and relying on luck to bail you out. In a lot of instances, that's not going to work. Now, Charlie Munger also mentioned something a little bit different than Warren Buffett. He says to avoid toxic people. Now, what Warren Buffett basically said, was to not become a toxic person yourself. By choosing kindness over hostility and contention, you yourself are not becoming a toxic person. But Charlie Munger says to avoid toxic people. If someone else chooses hostility and contention, that's someone you need to get away from. Now they do mention, not in this response, but later on, that there's some cases where you can't avoid toxic people because they're family, In those cases, they say just to minimize it as much as you can. Try to hold the relationship, but also minimize your level of impact from the toxicity. Now that life advice question was full of good information, but there's a lot more insights that Warren Buffett shares. In particular, this next question here on Apple. Now, I'm gonna go over Apple more specifically later on in this video. So we'll be talking about Apple a little bit later, but this part of the question, I actually wanna focus on the second half of Warren Buffett's answer. He talks about Apple for a little bit and he talks about the share buybacks and that it's a great company, but then he gets to something that I think is an underrated part of his answer, something that a lot of investors are missing, and it's the psychology, and even more so, how Warren Buffett understands human behavior. You see, in my portfolio, I have Apple as a very large holding, and it's one that I've studied for a long period of time. It was a holding that Warren Buffett bought five years ago. He bought $30 billion of the company. It was an enormous bet for him, and a lot of people were unsure about that bet. Apple, at the time that Warren Buffett bought it, was trading at an all-time high. It was a company that was considered an electronic device maker. Apple made devices. But regardless, Warren Buffett put $30 billion into Apple, and he was incredibly bullish on the company now at the time again when warren buffett was buying apple it was trading at a 17 P.E. And this was around the same forward price to earnings that Apple had always historically traded at, around a 15 to a 17. Warren Buffett was not buying it on any particular dip. In fact, at the time, many of the criticisms of Warren Buffett buying Apple is that it wasn't on a special deal. The company wasn't cheap. It was trading at a 17 P.E. The reason the company was trading at a 17 Ford P.E. is because Apple was looked at as a device maker, a company that simply made iPhones made tablets, and it made MacBooks. It was a device maker. Because of the unpredictability of their market, it had a lower multiple more in line with the rest of the market. But when I researched Apple, I realized that the company was being priced as a consumer discretionary, an electronic company, which are very unpredictable and very unreliable, when in reality, Apple was a consumer staple. It was a consumer staple with better economics than normal consumer staples. We can look at what are consumer staples. They're companies that are incredibly defensive. They're companies that are going to be around for the next 50 years. Ones that have very predictable earnings. We have companies like McDonald's, a very good consumer staple company. McDonald's has the brand value. It's reliable even during recessions. Consumer staples, because of their predictability of their moat and their durability, they trade at higher multiples. McDonald's trades at a 26 Ford PE ratio. Procter & Gamble trades at a 26. Costco trades at a 33. Pepsi trades at a 25. And Coca-Cola trades at a 25. All of these companies trade at the mid-20s to the 30s Ford P.E. ratios because they're in that basket of consumer staples. They're companies that have such good customer lock-in and such good durability that it's very unlikely for them to be disrupted. And here we had Apple priced at a 17 Ford P.E., which was in line with consumer discretionary. Now Apple trades at a 25 Ford PE, right in line with other consumer staple companies. So over the past five years, market participants have caught on to what Warren Buffett realized five years ago. Apple wasn't a consumer discretionary, in fact, their products aren't discretionary at all. Can you really go one day without your iPhone? It's very unlikely. And this is what Warren Buffett tries to relay. He's not so much an expert at understanding all of the technology or the chip making process or what company has the best LED screen. That's not his expertise. But what he is an expert on is understanding human behavior. And this is much more advantageous in terms of investing.
1: And I don't understand the phone at all. But I do understand consumer behavior. And I know how people think about whether to buy a second car. I know how they go out to different. we, We own auto dealerships. We own We're learning all the time from all of our businesses how People react to their animals versus, you know, selling them something else, and, and so C's was a sort of breakthrough. But but it just we just keep learning as to more about how people behave and how a good business can turn into a bad business and how some good businesses can maintain uh, uh, their competitive advantage.
0: Warren Buffett is an expert on understanding human behavior. And this is something that he's had a front row seat on for a long period of time. He operates many different businesses with many different brands, and he's able to sit there and get all the data and observe how humans interact with different companies and with different brands. So Warren Buffett understands how important an iPhone is to an average person. It's an incredibly important device, possibly the most important. He certainly understands that it's more important than a second car or a second home. People would rather have the iPhone. It brings immense value. And he understood this level of human behavior and the durable moat it gave to Apple five years ago. He also understands that Apple's doing all of these things to lock consumers into their ecosystem with all of their various businesses that they layer upon the iPhone. Warren Buffett's not oblivious to that. And this is something that he's highlighted many times in the past. Being an accountant does not give you an advantage in investing. Understanding numbers is important, but you only need to understand very rudimentary numbers to be a good investor. The big thing that gives you an advantage in investing is understanding human behavior. What people do and what they don't do. And how that fits into your investment thesis. How that identifies companies that have long-term durable connections with their customers. Even though Warren Buffett just highlighted what's important with this company, lots of investors still argue with them. Apple's growing slowly. That's the latest news that you've heard. In fact, it's declining year over year a little bit. Its revenue went down 2% and is projected to go down 2%. So Apple's revenue is going down. To a lot of investors, this means that Apple is a bad company. Apple's earnings were flat year over year. And again, a lot of investors are using this as evidence that Apple's no longer a good investment. But this is not what Warren Buffett pays attention to, and it's not what he says is important. Apple, over the past five years, has grown its free cash flow at a rate of 17% year over year. 17% compounded growth rates in its free cash flow since Warren Buffett took out the investment. That's about double the average in the market. And they've done that while sustaining an enormous moat and an incredible relationship with their customers. And Warren Buffett understands that as long as that relationship is maintained, as long as consumers continue to value their Apple devices the way they do currently, they will be able to generate economic returns. It may not be this year, but it will be over the next five years. Apple has proven time and time again that they're able to leverage their relationship with customers to generate very attractive free cash flows. So while most investors pour over the discounted cash flow analysis and they focus on things like the revenue growth, the earnings growth, and the P-E ratio, Warren Buffett instead focuses on the overall picture. What are the overall economics of the company and what type of relationship does that company have with its customers? How valuable is it to its customers? Now in the same realm of understanding human behavior, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are asked about if they've ever made emotionally driven investment decisions. Here's Warren Buffett's answer.
1: I can't recall any time in the history of Berkshire that we made an emotional decision.
0: Now, he says that he hasn't made one emotionally driven investment decision the entire time he's operated Berkshire. So 40 years of investing, no emotions have played into that. Now, you might say that this is self-reported, so he might be lying here and he really has, but I think that the evidence is on his side. If Warren Buffett made emotional decisions in terms of his investments, how could he accomplish the returns of 20% annualized returns? That is impossible to do if you're an emotional investor. So I'm more inclined to believe that he's correct. I think that Warren Buffett is incredibly good at taking emotions out of his investing decisions.
1: But have we ever made an emotional decision?
0: No. No. This is a very common trait amongst the best investors in the world. As you study them, you find that most of them are incredibly good at keeping emotions out of their decision. They think logically, they think cold and calculated when it comes to making their investments. They study the facts, they study the data, the competition, the valuation, and human behavior, and they combine that into a good investment decision. They don't invest based off of FOMO or hunches or survivorship bias. They stay cold and calculated in terms of their investments and they leave emotions to the other aspects of their life, their relationships and other parts of life. Now, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have a long history of disagreeing with financial academic teachings, teachings in school about finances. One of the things that they disagree fundamentally with is the idea of efficient market hypothesis. They believe it's based on a faulty premise and that it doesn't really operate like that in the real world. Warren Buffett has long believed, and he's proven over 40 years, that he can systemically exploit the dumbness of other investors. He has routinely and consistently taken advantage of inefficiencies in the market. But another thing they fundamentally disagree with is the academics definition of diversification. The idea that you have to have many holdings, all of them being a very small percentage of your portfolio to reduce specific risk in a portfolio. They don't believe that this is the way to have superior returns.
2: One of the inane things that's taught in modern university education is that a vast diversification is absolutely mandatory in investing in common stocks. That is an insane idea. It's not that easy to have a vast plethora of good opportunities that are easily identified. And if you've only got three, I'd rather be in my best ideas instead of my worst.
0: Now, Charlie Munger calls the idea of diversification insane. Why would you invest in your worst ideas? And again, this is something that's another example of advice from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger that they say routinely and they've shown with their own portfolios, but lots of investors completely avoid it. They go down a different path of a lot of diversification. In my case, I have a heavily concentrated portfolio. I agree with them. I think that having a handful of really great companies, very high quality compounders with incredibly good economics and incredibly good ties with their customers is a superior way to invest than being heavily diversified. In my case, I have nine positions, nine holdings that make up over 80% of my portfolio. So the vast majority of my allocated capital are in these nine positions, because right now when I do analysis on all the candidates for my portfolio, these represent my best ideas. Now, I'm not an advocate of having all of your money in one company, but I'm also not an advocate of having an endless amount of holdings that you can't possibly keep up and do research on. Now, let's move out of investing theory a little bit and get into some specific questions on different topics. One of them is Elon Musk. Charlie Munger was asked again about Elon Musk and his comments he made previously about how he thinks that Elon Musk overestimates himself. And I think that the answer that both Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett give here is very enlightening to how they act as investors and how that differs from Elon Musk.
2: Well, yes, I I think Elon Musk overestimates himself, but he he is very talented. So he's He's overestimating somebody who doesn't need to overestimate to be very talented.
1: There's a Bill Maher program about a week old, maybe two weeks old, but but he interviews Elon, and Elon does a t- terrific job, toe to toe with Bill Maher, who. I, it it, is worth watching
0: a lot of the things that elon musk is doing is commendable pushing the whole world towards evs is a good change having renewable energy through solar panels exploring the world through spacex and he talked about his recent purchase of twitter and how important he believes freedom of speech is a different approach than what a lot of other tech companies are taking now warren buffett acknowledges how brilliant elon musk is but he also makes a huge distinction between the types of things that elon musk pursues and the types of things that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger pursue.
1: He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. And I would say that, you know, he might score over 170, but, uh, but he, you know, it's, he, he dreams about things and, and they, and his dreams have got a foundation. He would not have achieved
2: what he has in life if he hadn't tried for unreasonably extreme objectives. He likes taking on the impossible job and doing it. We're different. I, things. Warren and I, are looking for the easy job that yeah. we can identify. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> if we can do it playing tic-tac-toe, we'll do it. You know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we know. have a wholly different way of going. It's the life. whole way, yeah, yeah. but we don't want to compete with Elon in, in a lot of things. I mean, it, you know, and, we
2: don't want that much failure.
1: This is a huge distinction
0: between types of investing styles. Elon Musk shoots for the moon. He's somebody that's incredibly ambitious. He takes massive risks. He's used to taking on failure. With SpaceX, there's rockets blowing up over and over again. And that's what's necessary to make huge advancements in society. The game that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett play is one where they minimize failure at all costs. They wanna have an incredibly high batting average. They wanna minimize risk as much as possible. So the dynamic difference between these two individuals, Warren Buffett and Elon Musk, is Stark. Warren Buffett looks for investments with highly predictable economics, human behavior, and returns on capital. Elon Musk takes huge ambitious steps that in many cases are highly risky, but so far have paid off very well. But overall, their view is very favorable towards Elon Musk. And again, Warren Buffett is showing why he chooses kindness over criticism. He could try to pinpoint the flaws of Elon Musk and the things he doesn't like, but instead he chooses kindness and to focus on the positives. Now moving on, we have another question that this time it references Aswath Damodaran, who's a professor, he's incredibly smart, he teaches about valuation, and he's often referred to as the Dean of Valuation. So he takes a heavily academic approach, and he has incredibly complex models of companies. He shares a lot of insightful information. But they have a question here where Aswath notes that Apple's a huge proportion of Berkshire's portfolio, and he has concerns about the
1: diversification. Wonders if Warren and Charlie can comment i'd like to make one comment first but charlie will come up with i
2: think he's out of his mind yeah i knew that I
1: was coming <laughs>
0: but right off the bat warren buffett knows that charlie bunger cannot hold his tongue when he hears about people saying that you don't want one position to become too big a part of your portfolio Charlie Munger can't help himself. He thinks it's insanity to not have your money in what you believe are your best ideas, the best companies to have your money.
1: Apple is not 35% of, of Berkshire's portfolio. Berkshire's portfolio includes the railroad, the energy business, the animals, you name it. C's Candy, they're all businesses. And, uh, you know, the, the good thing about Apple is that we, we can go up. They buy in their stock and instead of owning 5.6%, you know, they get down to, they got about 15 billion, 700 and some million shares outstanding. They get down to 15 and a quarter billion without us doing anything. We got 6%. So we can't own more than a hundred percent of the BNSF. We can't own more than a hundred percent of granules or Seas candy. and. It'd be nice, we'd love to own 200%, but that just isn't doable. But they're all the same, they're good businesses. And to think that our criterion, our criteria for Apple is different than the other businesses we own. It just happens to be a better business than any we own. Now, this is one of those little offhand
0: remarks. Warren Buffett says, Apple's better than any business we own. So you can look at the entire Warren Buffett portfolio, both private companies and publicly traded companies, both of them combined, and Apple's a superior company than anyone in his portfolio. Now, I've talked about the company in depth for a long period of time, but it's rare to see Warren Buffett do such comparisons, directly comparing Apple to the rest of Berkshire's portfolio. And he doesn't only say this offhand, but he expounds on it. He compares it to the railroads, which are also incredibly good businesses
1: a fair amount of money in it, but we haven't got more money in it than we've got in the railroad. And Apple is a better business. Our railroad is a very good business, but it's not remotely as good as Apple's business.
0: Now I own a little bit of some class one railroads. I invested $23,000 in the Canadian Pacific, which I think is an incredibly well-ran railroad. And then we have Union Pacific, another one that trades at a bit of a lower valuation, but it is an absolute behemoth. And I've studied railroads as an industry a little bit over the past year. These are incredibly good businesses. They have huge network effects. They are oligopolies. They have very limited competition between them and trucking. And in most cases, they're highly, highly preferable to trucking because they're far more efficient. They also have incredibly good economics. They produce consistent free cash flow every single year. And Warren Buffett understands that. He's owned a railroad for a long period of time. And he says that as great as it is, it's not even close to Apple. Apple is vastly superior.
1: Apple... You know, has a position with consumers where they're paying, you know, maybe they pay 1500 bucks or whatever it may be for a phone. And these same people pay $35,000 for having a second car. And if they had to give up a second car or give up their iPhone, they'd give up their second car. I mean, it's it's an extraordinary, we don't have anything like that that we own 100% of.
0: Warren Buffett's always highlighting the relationship and value proposition the company has with the customers. And he says that it's unlike any company that they've ever had. The value proposition for the stuff that Apple makes is unparalleled with any other business. And underlying that value proposition is great economics. So not only do they have a great relationship with customers, but they're able to monetize
1: that relationship. But we're very, very, very happy to have 5.6 or whatever it may be percent And we're delighted every 10th of a percent that goes up. That's like adding $100 million to our earnings. I mean, our share of the earnings. And they use their earnings to buy out our partners, which we're glad to see them sell out too index funds have to sell (laughs) if They bring the number of shares down. As Apple grows as
0: a company, many indexes have rules where they can only allocate a certain percentage to Apple. So they are forced to sell their shares of Apple, which Apple happily buys up with share buybacks, further increasing the equity stake of Warren Buffett and other Apple shareholders. This cycle has gone on to benefit Apple and the shareholders at the detriment of the index holder. Now moving on from Apple, he's once again asked about Paramount. And if we recall, the last time that Warren Buffett was asked about Paramount, he basically said that Paramount is not a good company. It's just not a good business, and streaming is very difficult, and the people on the inside get rich, and the investors don't. So Becky is doing a follow-up question here on Paramount.
1: I will say this, it's not good news when any company passes its dividend, or cuts a dividend dramatically. Now
0: that first piece of advice is obvious, but also important. Anytime a company has a massive dividend cut, like Paramount Global or Intel recently, It's obviously not good news. Dividends are made by the free cash flows of a company. As a company can continually grow its free cash flow per share, it can pay a higher dividend per share. So the reason that I'm always focusing on the growth of free cash flow per share is it's what generates all the buybacks and the growing dividend over time. This is what's making it so companies like Texas Roadhouse can grow their dividend at 16% per year. They're growing their free cash flow per share at 16% per year. So when a company like Intel or Paramount slashes their dividend by 80%, they're saying that they don't have the free cash flow to support the dividend.
1: And the streaming business is extremely interesting to watch because there's people... People love to use their eyeballs watching, being entertained on, on a screen in front of them or a phone or whatever it may be, but uh, uh, there's a lot of companies doing it. And you need fewer companies or you need higher prices. And, well, you need higher prices or it doesn't work. And you don't lock in people when you get them to, to join up for the streaming period when your serial runs. I mean, you, you know, you keep them on for a while but you can't lock them up.
0: He, again, doesn't really give an answer of what the investment thesis is for Paramount. Now, the last question that I want to highlight from this meeting is Warren Buffett's thoughts on the Activision-Microsoft merger and the UK blocking it. The first thing he said is that he's not going to divulge whether or not they've sold their Microsoft stake, but he goes on to highlight that he thinks that Microsoft has acted appropriate in this case.
1: They want to do the deal, and they met the, the opposition, it seems to me. More than halfway, but that doesn't mean that it gets done if if uh, a given country in this case the UK uh, wants to block it they're in a better position to block it than, than our, the United States, but just the way the world works and uh, uh, that doesn't get solved by offering more money or so it, it um, I don't know how it how it turns out. Ultimately, he says he doesn't know. It's the same situation
0: they've been in for a while. But he does note that Microsoft has held up their end of the deal. They've made a lot of concessions. They've met the opposition party more than halfway, and he thinks that they've acted appropriately but we'll see if more authorities decide to shut down this deal. It's ultimately not in Microsoft's hands. Now that's all the clips for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want more content, I have another episode coming out later this week. So make sure you're subscribed if you haven't already. I'll be going over my portfolio and different companies that I'm doing analysis on. And another thing I'll mention is I appreciate everybody that's tried out the new Qualtrum version 2.0, it has had incredibly good response so far. A lot of people have enjoyed it. We had over 300 additional signups over the week, so I appreciate everybody that's decided to check this out. And if you haven't already, you can check it out by joining the Patreon, which comes with a free trial. This is included as part of the Patreon. So other than that, I'll see you in the next one.